Esther chapter 4, verse 9 to 14. The title of my message this evening is For Such a Time as This. Stepping into your God-designed destiny. Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that whoever, whether man or woman, wishes to come to the king at the inner court but has not been summoned, there is one law to put him to death, unless... For some reason, the king should hold out the golden scepter so that he might live. I, however, have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. So all the words of Esther were told to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will be more likely to escape than all the other Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, Protection and deliverance for the Jews will be ordained from some other place, but you and your father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows if you may have attained the royal position for such a time as this. The story of Esther is an incredible story in the Bible. And... uh, If you've never read it, you should read it tonight before you go to bed. Basically, the story is about a young girl, a Jewish girl, who, uh, uh, because of the king's queen Vashti, who, when he had a great party, summoned his queen Vashti to come and see him, and she refused to come and see him. And so he banished her from ever seeing him again and looked for another wife. And God's favor on this young Jewish girl, they didn't know that she was Jewish, the king, Esther, brought her into that place where she became his wife. During that time, there was uh, a terrible man called Haman. And Mordecai, a Jew, refused to bow down to him. And Haman hated that so much. He was so arrogant and proud that he got the king to give him the power to destroy the Jews. This is where we picked up the story where Mordecai was speaking to Esther and saying, you've got to intercede on our behalf. You've got to go to the king and you've got to set in motion something that will deliver us. If you don't go to the king now, then who's going to intercede? And this was the discussion that they were having. In the end, she goes to the king. The king receives her and extends his scepter to her so that she didn't die. And then what was set in motion was the deliverance of the Jews and uh, the judgment of the evil Haman. That's the basic story, just in case there's someone here today that has never read read this this story before. Out of it, the Jews uh, celebrate the festival of Purim. That's where this is based. So I want to talk a little bit about this and about how, for such a time as this, how we are to step into our God-designed destiny. It's interesting when we look at the book of Esther... Because some people have criticized the book of Esther. Some people have even doubted whether it should be in the Bible. Uh, And uh, the reason that they do that is they say, well, do you know in the book of Esther, uh, God is not mentioned one time. 
There's no mention of God. God's name is not in Esther. So what's this got to do with God? Should it even be in the Bible? This is what people have said. But I think they've missed the point. If you read Esther carefully, the beautiful thing is, is that what we are seeing is the hand of God working behind the scenes, quietly, silently, working powerfully behind the scenes. And I, I like the fact that, his, that God's name is not in Esther. I like that fact because sometimes in our lives, we could be saying to ourselves, where's God? Where's his manifestation? I don't see God. I don't hear him speak. I don't see him moving. It's like God isn't around at all. Well, that's a little bit like Esther. God is not out there in some uh, evident angelic visitation. He doesn't turn up in a burning fire like he, he did with Moses. He's not up front and central. Uh, he is not evident, it seems, but as we'll see, actually, he is working as powerfully in the book of Esther as he is when he comes in angelic manifestation, when he comes in holy fire, when he comes in dramatic, obvious, miraculous interventions. He is just as much and as powerfully at work in the book of Esther as he is in all those overt, miraculous interventions where everybody shouts out it's God and can see God at work. Remember, God is as much at work in your life in the quiet seasons as he is when he speaks loudly and, and comes in power and you see him uh, not working in, in, in the background but very much in the foreground. He's just as much at work. And, and this is important because this was a time for the Jews when it looked like God had abandoned them when it looked like God was no longer in delivering mode like he was with the great Exodus people where many miracles took place, the parting of the waters, the fire, the, the fire at night, the cloud during the day, the manna, all these miraculous interventions. Now it looked because the children of Israel, well, the best of them anyway, had been taken into Babylonian captivity. The temple had been destroyed. I mean, it looked like the God of the Jews was not powerful or was non-existent. It seemed that he had failed to come and, and defeat the gods of Babylon, but rather it seemed that the gods of Babylon had succeeded over the, the god of the Hebrews because they'd smashed his temple, desecrated his holy of holies, and brought the best of the people off into captivity. It looked like God had abandoned his people. But he hadn't. He was just working very powerfully and quietly behind the scenes. And when you understand that, and when you see what happens in the end, the great deliverance of the Jews and the defeat of the seemingly all-powerful evil Haman with all his plots against God's people, you realize that God was at work. But we can also trace early as we read this book how God was at work. God is at work in your life on a daily basis, whether you know it or not, whether you're saying, where's God, whether, whether things are going well for you or not well for you, whether you're bored, whether, whether you're just living a routine and you're thinking, is anything ever going to happen? Do I have a purpose? Is there, is there some reason that I'm on earth to serve the Lord? 
I'm going to pick out just a few things here and, uh, and, and show you that. I've mentioned that what took place was that allowed Esther to get into this place of being with the king is that there was a Queen Vashti. And she was obviously a very arrogant and silly woman because uh, when the king asked to see his wife, for her to refuse to come to him was, was a terrible situation. But you see, God was even at work in that. God is at work even in the ungodly. And even when the ungodly strive against one another, it doesn't mean that God has got nothing to do it. He can, he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. How many do you know that? So Vashti's arrogance and her judgment to be banished from the king's presence forevermore was the beginning of God's occasion to bring deliverance to the Jews before the Jews even knew that they were going to be soon in mortal danger. We read of Esther in chapter 2 and verse 7. And we get a little bit of her background. It, it mentions, well, we'll read from verse 5. Now, in the citadel of Susa, there was a certain Jew named Mordecai, the son of Jaya, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. He'd been taken away from Jerusalem among the exiles and carried into captivity along with King Jeconoah of Judah by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He was the guardian of Hadassah, that is Esther, who was his uncle's daughter because she had neither father nor mother. Straight away we should pause. Did you know that Esther was an orphan. She had no father or mother. Think about that. What a past. I wonder how she lost her father and mother. Or maybe they were killed uh, during the Babylon, Babylonian takeover or Jerusalem. Whatever it was, she was left orphaned. Not a great start in life, you would have thought. And who would have imagined that this orphan girl would one day be the queen of the greatest empire in the world at that time. And then we see Mordecai, who was her uncle, who out of the goodness of his heart, took her in and treated her as his own daughter. She didn't start great, did she, Esther? She didn't start with a silver spoon. She didn't start with a golden education. She started by losing her parents. And I don't know, we don't know when she lost her parents. Did she lose them as a baby? Or was she a young girl? Uh, did she witness uh, the loss of her parents? Right there in her past was a humble beginning, uh, a beginning of tragedy. You know, when we look back in our lives, when you look back in your lives and you think of the good things that have happened to you, praise God, that was from God. But maybe you can think of some things that took place in your life as a child or a teenager or things that took place in the history of your life, and you look at them, and they weren't good things. It's not good to lose your mum and your dad as a young girl. And, and you look at those things, and you look at the failures of the past, or the injustices that were no fault of your own, or, or the things that you didn't have that other people had, and you can look at that, and you can feel sorry for yourself, and it's all right to feel sorry for yourself. But you know, even in those things, Though the devil meant it for harm and other people for harm, God was not taken by surprise. And he can take 
and redeem even the bad things in our history. I mean, he can redeem it. He can redeem all things. What does it mean to redeem? It means to buy something back. It means to take something and to bring it back and make it worthwhile. So don't feel that your past is going to hold you back. You may feel that. You may feel, well, you know, this happened. I didn't have that. I was brought up in these circumstances and and I am at a disadvantage to other people around me. You're not at a disadvantage for the destiny that God has for you. Naturally, you may think and may perhaps be at a disadvantage to others, but you're not at a disadvantage for God's plan for your life. You don't have to have the background of somebody else to become the person that God wants you to be and to, and to achieve the things that God wants you to be. He can turn your failures into the very things that cause you to become the very person that he needs you to be as you go forward in your life. We also see something else here. It says um, uh, in, in verse, verse 7 of chapter 2, the young woman was lovely to look at and beautiful in form. Well, what, what is that talking about? It was talking about the fact that God had given Esther a gift for her future. He had given her the gift of beauty. In this particular case, she was a beautiful, beautiful woman to look at. But there was purpose in that. God made her beautiful because one day she was going to have to turn the head of the king of Babylon himself. There was purpose in that. You say, well, I wish I was beautiful. Or you say, I wish I wasn't beautiful. Or whatever you say. Listen, whether you, you consider yourself beautiful physically or not is not the issue. God has created you perfectly for the plans that he has for you. And so when we reflect and we look at our lives, what are your gifts? Everybody has gifts. Every, everybody has something that God has given them that they can give to others. It could be a character. It could be kindness. It could be a, an ability, uh, an academic ability or a business ability. It could be a sporting ability or a creative or artistic ability. It could be a serving ability. Like I said, it could be a, a, a gift of character, if I can put it like that. I know character is learnt, but sometimes God just gives somebody a communication or a gift of communication or, or someone is, has just got almost, you would say, naturally a kind heart or a generous heart. You know what I'm talking about? These are God's gift for you specifically for the designed destiny that he has for you. So your failures or the bad things in your past, you may think they'll hold you back, but actually they won't because in the hand of God, they won't hold you back, but they will catapult you forward. The gifts that you've had, and maybe you've already benefited from your abilities, your gifts, and uh, the good character uh, that you have. Maybe you've, almost, you've benefited from them. Maybe you've made a career out of them. Uh, maybe you've made friends out of them. You've already benefited. She could benefit from her good looks, couldn't she? We know that somebody with good looks could benefit from that. And uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, think of Donald Trump's wife. She's a good-looking woman. I don't think that hurt her in um, getting chosen by Donald Trump for a wife. What do you think? No. So, but, but, it, but it's whatever gifts and character that you 
personally have. They're the gifts of God. And it's not just that you've got a gift here, you've got an ability there, you've got a character uh, there. These are part of God's design. Even when you don't perhaps know what these characteristics or gifts will eventually produce for the kingdom of God. God has purpose. God is a God of purpose. And as we've lived our lives, sometimes we don't understand why we're good at this and not good at that. We don't understand why we've got this gift and not that gift. We don't understand why we had to go through that and others didn't. We don't understand these things. But when you read the book of Esther, you know that God has a plan for all of these things. There's a purpose. And and we need to learn to step into God's design destiny for our lives for such a time as this. Not only uh, was her background, for good or for bad, part of God's design, not only had God given Esther unique gifts and characteristics that were part of his design for his call on her life, but he also gave her favour where favour was needed for the purposes of God to come to pass in her life. So, for example, if we go a little bit further down, still in chapter 2, it says, uh, verse 8, when the king's notice and his decree were heard, I'm looking for a, a beautiful young wife, many young women were then gathered to the citadel of Susa and placed under the custody of Hegai. We heard about him earlier. Esther was likewise brought to the king's house and placed under the custody of Hegai, who was in charge of the harem. He was the one that was gathering all these young ladies um, to see which one would be chosen by the king. Now listen, verse 9. Because the young lady appeared pleasing to him and had gained favor in his sight, he quickly gave her the ointments and cosmetics, the allotted food, and seven young chosen women from the king's palace. He transferred her and the young women to the best of the harem. Now, if we just turn a little bit further on, this is all about who is, who is going to be selected. Let's go down to verse 25. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of, uh, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what the king's eunuch, Hegai, who who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Then verse, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than any other woman because she'd gained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Again, you can see God is at work here. You know, she was pretty, and I'm sure there were a lot of other pretty girls there as well. And the first thing that God does is give her special favor with the person that's in charge of the beauty contest, if we can put it that way. The person who's running the beauty contest is drawn to her, likes her, and gives her favor, gives her special advice. He says, when you go into the king, let me give you a word of advice. He gave her that advice. He didn't give it to anybody else. Uh, don't ask for this, uh, do this, do that in his presence. He was paving the way for her. And then, of course, when the king saw her, uh, he loved her more than the rest because she'd gained grace and favor in his sight. 
Favor comes from the Lord. You know that. But it comes for a specific reason and design. God's design, his destiny for you. Wherever God gives you favor, it's not just favor for you to be blessed. That's the byproduct of it. But it is favor for a divine kingdom purpose. We know the end of the story because I told it to you and you've probably read the book a a, a lot. We know what the end of the story. This favor was not just about her career prospects. It was not just about her being crowned Miss World in Babylon. All those things were, were, were going to happen. But this favor was actually about the deliverance from persecution and death of the Jewish people in Babylonian captivity. The stakes were high, weren't they? But, but, but she didn't realize that at the moment, but we can realize it. So wherever God has given you favor, not just your gifts, not just the past that won't hold you back, no matter what your past is, it won't hold you back. It will catapult you forward because you don't need my past for your future. I don't need your past for my future. God knows what he's got planned for you, all right? Not only is he giving you gifts and characteristics, special things that you have, your strong points, your strengths. He's given you those because he's got a plan, a divine plan for you. And also, wherever he gives you favour. You see, when you pray for people and you pray for them to have favour, if they don't get favour, don't, you can be disappointed, but, but that means that God ultimately wasn't in what you were praying for. You hear what I'm saying? But when, when, when favour comes, try and recognise the favour of God on your life, in your circumstances, and also in, in those that, that, that you know, in your, in, in your friends, in the cell group, in your cell members. Identify where, where the favour of God is. Because if the favour of God's not there, then it's, it's not going to go smoothly. Now, you can force issues in the flesh, but ultimately, uh, that, that's not going to get you anywhere. But favour, where you just, we, you know what it's like. You just go, wow, that was God. Oh, God was on that. Well, how, how did I get to meet this person? How did I get this job in the first place? Uh, wh- why is this person being so kind to me? Why is this teacher, when you're at school, when you're at work, in a scenario, somebody just begins to give you kindness, as we, as we see here. Things are happening. It's the favor of God. It's not you. It's not you. It's God. God has given you the gifts to make the way for you. God has given, your, given you your characteristics that, that, that are helping you going forward and that are your strengths. God has given them to you. God has given them to you. You say, well, I put them to work. Good for you. Others, you need to take your strengths and apply them. There may be some people here today, you've got strengths, but you're not using them. You've got abilities, but, but you're not using You've got talents. Don't bury them. Release them, whatever you have got from God, your natural gifts, your abilities, you must put them to work for the kingdom of God. Not primarily for yourself, but as we've been hearing again and again, kingdom first and the other things will follow. 
Often what happens is we get things the wrong way around. We think our gifts, our abilities, or the favor of God in whatever we do, we look at those things and we enjoy those. And then we say, well, this is great. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. Look where I am. Look at my gifts. Look at my abilities that I'm using for my own benefit. And, and oh, may, maybe for God sometime. Maybe for God. Maybe God can have a little bit of it. On the contrary, all of this is for God's design and has a wider implication than just you and you going through the future to make a success of your life. Your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your past, for good or for bad, is there eventually to benefit other people in the kingdom of God and to bring people in the kingdom of God. You see, you see uh, Esther could have maybe gone to the Lord when this was all over and said, Father, Lord, Thank you for giving me Mordecai as a great uncle. Thank you for giving me beauty. Thank you for giving me favor. Thank you that I am now the queen. Oh, it's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, that's all right. Except God might say, well, you're welcome, but actually I didn't do it for you. I could have done it, I could have done it for any woman. I, I could have made any of the other beautiful women do it. I, I didn't actually do it for you. I'm glad you're blessed by it and I love you and I'm glad you're enjoying it and well done. But I didn't do it for you. I did it for them. Your gifts, your character, who you are is a gift, a specific gift from the Holy Spirit to the body of Christ. If you're part of Kensington Temple in any way, shape or form, you are a specific embodied gift to the vision of Kensington Temple. And you must play your part and take your role as God has gifted you to be. That's, that, that, that's the primary purpose. Everything else is wonderful. But this is, God is wanting to use you to be a blessing in the kingdom and you have been created and designed and God has taken you this far for such a time as this, the purpose. And then we have this other picture of Mordecai. And actually, where it, where it all goes wrong, or seemingly goes wrong, is in chapter 3, and uh, verse 2 to 5, where Mordecai decides to take a stand for Jesus, if I can put it that way. Here he is. Haman has been given great power. All the king's servants... Verse 2 of chapter 3. When they were at the king's gate, bowed or paid homage to Haman, since the king had commanded it. Mordecai, however, never bowed or paid homage. So the king's servants tending the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's commandment? Though they spoke to him daily, he never listened to them. So they reported it to Haman to see if the words of Mordecai would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed nor paid him homage, he was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on only Mordecai, uh, since they told him of the people of Mordecai. So Haman sought to um, destroy all the Jews throughout the whole of the kingdom of, of Asuras. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth years of King Asuras, they cast poor lots before Haman daily. That's where we get the festival of Purim from. So can you see, if um, Mordecai just, just kept quiet, just on a little bit of a bow, just bowed to the world and to the thinking of the world, if he just compromised, you could say none of this would ever have happened. That, that this greatest man 
apart from the king who was going to destroy the whole Jews because one man refused to bow. Why couldn't he have bowed? Why couldn't he have bowed and said, Yahweh, I was, he was bowing? Why couldn't he have compromised? It, it was the fact that he didn't compromise that set off all this terrible persecution. There's a lesson here for us. We don't have to bow the knee to Babylon. We don't have to bow the knee to Babylon. He wasn't disrespectful in any other way. He was a model citizen in, in any other way. But, but to him, being a Jew was, was first. God was first. It's a powerful thing for us to think about. Then I want to go back now to the place where, um, where, where, where we left off. In Esther chapter 4 verse 9. And what we see here is a scepter moment. A scepter moment. Because here is Esther and Haman was going to destroy the Jews and there was no one to stop him. And so the only way that this could be stopped was if Esther somehow got to the king, pleaded with the king and changed the situation. Although we did read that Mordecai said, hey, if you don't do it, God will find someone else. That's quite a, a stark warning, isn't it? That God wants to use us. He's got a plan for us. And he asks us to step up to the plate at such a time as this. And to reach out for the scepter. And I'll explain what that is in a few moments. But if we don't, then he'll find someone else to do it. What a shame if we don't step up to the plate like Esther did. And everything was at stake when she stepped up. She could have protected herself. She could have said, well, what's that got to do with me? I'm all right. Uh, no one, uh, Haman could never touch me. I'm the queen. I, I, I'm, I've got everything I need. Yet other people were in need. Now, sometimes I wonder about the church, us, God's people, the body of Christ here in Britain. Do we have... I'm speaking to myself as well. Do we have any idea the perilous situation of those that are not saved in Britain and Europe? Do you know, it's almost a rhetorical question for most of you, do you actually know what happens to a person, any person that dies in their sins? It is horrific. If you die in your sins, you do not go to heaven, but you go to the place of punishment forever and ever. It is horrific. It's far worse than if uh, uh, Esther said, well, you know, I'm all right. The Jews, the rest of the Jews, they just have to look after themselves, take their chances. And so in one sense, there is going to be moments where we as a people of God, we need to, to have the attitude that Esther didn't say, I'm going to play my part for the sake of others that are in danger of perishing, even though I'm not in danger of perishing. And we're not. If you have given your life to Jesus, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, and that he rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, then you are in no danger of dying in your sins. You, you are saved. You are, you, you, are, you are born again. You are cleansed. 
you, you are in no danger. But, but the majority of people in Europe, the vast, vast, vast majority of people in Europe, should they die today, they would die in their sin. Something needs to happen. And so at this moment, Mordecai said, perhaps that you were put in this position for such a time as this. And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. All the working behind the scenes of God, and they didn't know why, now all of a sudden it was going to be revealed that God was working in her life and preparing her for a place where he could use her for powerful kingdom purposes that would save many people from destruction. And there she had it. She had her scepter moment where she put herself, her queenship, her security, her prosperity. Indeed, she put her life in danger by daring to go into the king's presence on behalf of other people, knowing that if he did not extend the scepter, she would die. But guess what? Her faith, her trust in God, and her recognition that she had been put there for such a time as this for the benefit of others. She recognized the hand of God. She believed God and she reached out and she touched the scepter. And touching that scepter, once she touched the scepter of the king, everything from that moment began to change. It still had to work out in the story, but that was the key moment. You know, we may in our lives, like Esther, have a key scepter moment. That was her key scepter moment. And I'm not saying that, that there won't come a time in our lives that we will have a key moment where we decide whether we're going to put it on the line for the Lord, where we've been prepared and positioned and fashioned through the work of God, whether powerfully and overtly through prophecy and miraculous intervention, or just simply, quietly, behind the scenes, being faithful to God, and then there comes that moment, and the question is, will we launch out of our security with faith at risk to ourselves and everything we've achieved for the sake of others? Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of the war years, he said this, to each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing, unique to them and fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. When he became prime minister, at the age of 65, on the 10th of May, 1940, when it looked like Germany were going to crush all in their path, including Great Britain, he says this in his book of, of Recollections of the Second World War. He says this, On that day, I felt as if I was walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. I've often thought about that. I'm going to read it again. So I, this is the moment he became prime minister. I felt as if I was walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. 
I think there's something there to learn that, 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 that God is not finished with you. He's preparing you. That as long as you're on earth, there is something in the future that he's preparing you for. But I don't want people to think, oh, well, it just must be one big scepter moment. These things can happen, like the moment when Abraham had, had his big scepter moment when he chose to take Isaac up on the mountain and was prepared to sacrifice him because he knew that God had the power and would have to raise Isaac back from the dead. That was like his renowned scepter moment uh, when he showed his full maturity. But often these moments come here and there where we have an opportunity to step up to the moment, an opportunity for such a time as this, when there's a moment when we can reach out, as it were, and touch the scepter. It's not just once. Sometimes there's a continuous opportunity. Sometimes there are seasons. Sometimes we find ourselves in a circumstance. And we should ask ourselves, is this a scepter moment? Is this a time when I put myself forward, out of my comfort zone, out of everything that I'm enjoying, out of the gifts and, and good things that God has got for me. Is this a moment, is this a situation which is a scepter moment where I'm going to need to trust God and where I'm going to step out and I'm going to touch the scepter of the king knowing that I am putting myself in a place of risk, whatever that risk means. But I'm putting myself in a place of risk for God and for others. These can be little moments but very profound as well as big moments. What are these scepter moments? Come in various forms in our careers, our lives, our families, our relationships, and also in our life in the body of Christ. For example, and I don't have to drive this home, but the 2020 vision, it's a scepter moment. It's a scepter moment. It's a scepter moment for us all to think about this vision, to say to ourselves, what's my next step? Not what's my next a hundred steps, but what's my next step? How do I respond? Like you can go on the internet, can't you? And say, I'm in. You can go on the KT website, go there. It says, I'm in. You put your name, address, and you just, but, but what is God saying to you about your scepter moment? We've got, we've got for such a time as this, you know the vision, we've got four year window of opportunity. That's going to mean a lot of scepter moments for a lot of people. Not just in how you're going to respond to a vision about what we're to become even more than what we're going to do, but also spiritually in your, in your, in your, your life as a, a maturing believer, in, in your mo mobilization, in your life in, in wider London and society and family, uh, as well as in other people's lives that need to be saved from their sins. There's going to be scepter moments in that, just as there'll be scepter moments in your private lives, scepter moments in your career lives. And the way to approach these scepter moments, I believe tonight as I come to a close, is by a thorough understanding of the book of Esther. Because it won't always be flashes of lightning from heaven. I've found that that, that, that that comes, but very rarely. That often it's day to day, week to week, it's decisions that don't seem at the time, you know, like they're going to turn the world upside down. But a recognition that God has given you gifts, God is Lord of your past, and that, as Shakespeare said, past is prologue. Past is prologue. In other words, everything that's happened to you is simply a preparation for tomorrow. 
I love that phrase, past is prologue. The past is the beginning, it's the start. Let's bow our heads in prayer.